Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 43 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode, on the second Sunday of Advent, I address the following topics. First, the upcoming feast days this week that we can celebrate. Even though we're currently in Advent, there are still feast days that occur on the Church's calendar, and many of them this week, like so many others that we've talked about before, are worth meditating upon. Secondly, I address the upcoming pledge against indecent films. In fact, a pledge we are to make today per the U.S. bishops. I go over that in more detail. And lastly, a previous article of mine from several years ago entitled, Was the Blessed Virgin an Unwed Mother? is something I'll be going over today, especially as we are in Advent and we will soon celebrate the birth of our Lord at Christmas. I think it's important to understand and reflect on this important article on the Blessed Mother. Was she an unwed mother? Yes or no? We will have the answer. But before we go into these topics, I'd like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by catechismclass.com. Catechismclass.com is the leader in online Catholic catechism classes, offering everything from online children's catechesis programs to adult courses, whether you're studying for RCIA or just want to learn the faith more. They also offer sacramental preparation for marriage preparation, baptismal preparation, confirmation prep, as well as quinceanera preparation classes, catechist training courses, and so much more. In fact, it's never too late to study the fullness of the Catholic faith, and catechismclass.com is the gold standard in authentic Catholic faith formation online in a unique way, combining catechism passages, scripture readings, traditional prayers, official magisterial teaching, and so much more. I encourage you to check out their special Advent study course, now available for 25% off for a limited time. You can check that out in the show notes and enter discount code ADVENT25 to take advantage of this limited time offer. Again, thank you, catechismclass.com, for sponsoring this episode. On to the first topic of today's episode, it is the upcoming feast days this week, and specific mention should be made that we are currently within the octave of the Immaculate Conception. Now, this is the a common octave, according to the Church's traditional ranking of octaves. If you'll notice, though, this octave is not mentioned in your 1962 Missals because, unfortunately, like so many other octaves, it was abolished in the reforms by Pope Pius XII in the mid-1950s. This is one of the reasons so many traditionalists are now preferring the pre-1955 Missal, not only for the changes that were not, um, you know, the Holy Week changes that were not really traditional, that were forced upon the Church per, per those reforms, but in additional the keeping of these traditional octaves, the keeping of so many more vigils, and some uh, other small practices, which together aggregate to quite a bit of our church's patrimony and heritage, especially regarding the liturgy. So the pre-1955 Missal will include this common octave of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Originally referred to as the Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, December 8th became a holy day of obligation universally in the year 1708 under Pope Clement XI, nearly 150 years before Pope Pius IX dogmatically and infallibly defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. 
Pope Innocent XII, in 1693, raised to the rank of a double of a second class and with an octave for the universal church. So the octave goes back a very long time as well. In fact, even before it was a holy day of obligation. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes if you're interested. Of course, you can click on that. You can look at the upcoming feast days this week, and you'll see that many of these days this week are just simply say within the octave of the Immaculate Conception. You can learn more about the octave and the spirituality of it by reading that short article. But I did want to make specific mention to a unique uh, aspect of today. So today not only is the second Sunday of Advent, but it is the Sunday within the octave of the Immaculate Conception. And the American bishops at a meeting in Washington in 1938 requested that all ordinaries have the Pledge of the Legion of Decency taken by all the faithful at all masses, in all churches and all chapels throughout the entire United States on the Sunday within the octave of the Immaculate Conception. So that is today. I will have a specific link to that pledge in the show notes. Unfortunately, I don't really see any chapels and churches continuing to keep this pledge and recite it. You think about the impact we could have on culture. We call this to mind every year that we should only be making decent and moral motion pictures. So please, even if your chapel has not publicly recited this, I do encourage you to print this out and save it and recite it as a family. It is a very short pledge, but it's very meaningful as we continue to try to chip away at the culture of death and the immorality that has affected the church. I really highly encourage everybody to honor the request of the American bishops back from 1938 and take this important pledge today. Now, continuing on, some of the upcoming feast days this week worth mentioning, one of which, December 10th, is in some places the Feast of the Translation of the Holy House of Loretto. Now, this is what Dom Geringer writes uh, regarding this feast. Quote, This feast is not one of those inserted in the universal calendar of the Church, but it is kept throughout Italy and in many dioceses in various parts of the Christian world and by a number of religious orders. It was instituted in thanksgiving for the great favor bestowed on the Western Church, whereby God, to console Christians for the loss of the Holy Sepulchre, miraculously translated into a Catholic land, the humble yet venerable house in which Mary received the message of the angel, and where by the consent of this holy virgin the word was made flesh and began to dwell among us. It is no unusual thing to me Catholics who are sincerely devoted to their holy faith, yet who have never heard of the house of Loretto. It is for their sake that we resolve to take the opportunity of this feast to give an exact and concise account of this wonderful event." End quote. Now, I'll go, as I you know, mentioned before, I will have much more information in the show notes. Click on that and read about the translation of the Holy House of Loretto. We cannot go over the details now, but it's quite a miraculous story that after the Holy Land was lost during the Crusades, Christians had this miracle occur to them. And this miracle is precisely that the Holy House of Nazareth, that is the site of the birth of the Mother of God, her early education, and of the Annunciation, was found. It was mystically transported in the year 1291, specifically on May the 10th. And um, this is a particularly often altogether not often known apparition, you know, or, or miraculous event at least, this translation. And it should be known by many more people. In fact, if you look at the image in that article, you'll notice that there's a chapel in this house. And notice on the altar it is written, Hic verbo caro factum est. The word was made flesh here. 
This is a very holy place, and we are privileged to have this in a Christian land to be duly venerated by the faithful. God continues to work miracles amongst us, and this is one miracle more people should know about. So the, again, the translation of the Holy House of Loretto is not on the universal calendar, but it has a beautiful colic prayer, and the fact that it actually occurred is really worth our meditation this upcoming week. December 11th is the Feast of St. Uh, Damascus I. He was, um, he was one of the famous popes of the early church. He was born around the year 306 to a pious family, the son of a priest in Rome. And he served as a deacon in his father's church for some time before becoming a priest and the assistant to Pope Liberius. He was thereafter chosen as the 37th pope of the Catholic Church. Now, it should be noted, if, if you, you know, actually listen to that, that he was the son of a priest. Of course, this was a Catholic priest. Uh, because at this time, priestly celibacy was not um, practiced by everybody, mandatory-wise, uh, in, in the Roman Catholic Church, that is. So um, there's nothing scandalous about that. Um, priestly celibacy was certainly practiced in the early church, and it became mandatory sometime after. So don't let that detail alarm anybody. Uh, now, during his reign as Pope, uh, St. Damascus I governed amid the violence of those who adhered to the anti-Pope at the time. And at this time, the Arian heresy grew in strength, leading to schisms in Antioch, Constantinople, Sardinia, and Rome. And yet it was with great jubilation that Christianity was declared the state religion of the Roman Empire during his reign. St. Damascus restored catacombs, shrines, and the tombs of the martyrs, and wrote poetry uh, as well as beautiful dedication to the martyrs. He considered himself too unworthy to be buried near the martyrs who suffered so much for their faith. Ten of his letters, personal and pontifical, have survived to this day. Pope St. Damascus is famous for having commissioned St. Jerome to translate the scriptures into Latin, and the letters from Jerome to Damascus are an example of the primacy of the See of Peter. Again, the link in the show notes will have more information regarding his life, as well as some quotations from those letters, which truly show the primacy of the seat of Peter. Now, the next day, December 12th, especially for those of us in the United States, is the important feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe. In the 1962 Missal, this feast day is kept on November 16th in the Diocese of New Orleans. For those dioceses who keep Our Lady of Guadalupe as a patroness and keep it on December 12th in the other dioceses, it is a first-class feast. Now, a short recap of this event. In the year 1531, Our Lady of Guadalupe, that is, the Blessed Virgin Mary under the name Our Lady of Guadalupe, appeared to a converted Aztec by the name of Juan Diego in uh, Tepeyac which is now an area just outside of Mexico City. Juan Diego had converted to Catholicism some years before in 1524 or 1525, not long after the Spanish came to the area. And he would walk 14 miles barefoot to attend Mass and seek instruction in the faith. Unlike the visionaries of Fatima and Lourdes, Juan Diego was not young. In fact, at the age of 57, he was considered old by the standards of his time. But what makes him similar to the children is his poverty and humility. He was the, of the lowest class in society, and he is reported to have told the Blessed Mother, I am nobody, I am a small rope, a tiny ladder, the tail end, a leaf. Now, famously, Juan Diego wore a coarse cloak made from cactus fiber. And uh, the story is that the Blessed Virgin Mary worked a miracle, and she asked for a church to be dedicated in that area. 
And so what he did is he approached the bishop, and the bishop doubted these stories about the that they were actually the Blessed Virgin Mary who appeared to him. So Juan Diego asked for a sign to prove to the bishop that the, that the visions were real, and Our Lady then appeared and told Juan Diego to pick up roses that were blooming out of season and bring them in his cloak to the bishop. So he did so, and when he opened the cloak, going to the bishop again, the cloak, also known as the tilma, uh, as he opened it, the Blessed Virgin Mother's likeness was revealed on the cloak. And although the cactus cloth should have deteriorated within 20 years, this tilma still exists today. It defies scientific explanation and remains intact. In fact, the actual image of Our Lady of Guadalupe has a perfect representation of the constellations exactly as of that moment when she appeared to him. After bringing the tilma to the bishop, Juan Diego spent the rest of his life in a room near the chapel where the image was housed. He cared for the church and the pilgrims who came to pray to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Twenty-five successive popes have honored the appearance of Our Lady in Mexico, and millions of pilgrims visit the basilica each year to see the miraculous image. Thousands of miracles are reported each year. Our Lady of Guadalupe is the patroness of the Americas and the patron saint of the unborn. Her image has been analyzed in detail, and it appears that she is portrayed as pregnant, as indicated by the high black ribbon above her above her waist. Uh, what should be noted is on the pagan temples of Mexico, the serpent is the prevalent image. And when the Blessed Virgin Mary came to Juan Diego, she spoke in his native language and is believed by some to have called herself um, the native word, which is pronounced like the Spanish word Guadalupe. And that native word means one who crushes the serpent. This is yet another reason why we should pray to Our Lady of Guadalupe on behalf of the unborn. I will note that Our Lady of Guadalupe is the patroness of the Americas. She is not the patroness of the United States proper. That is her, the Blessed Virgin Mary, under the title of her Immaculate Conception, is the patroness of the United States. But of the Americas as a whole, especially of Latin America and of Mexico, she is the patroness. No, December 12th is also uh, the day in which roses are traditionally blessed in her honor. Again, if you go to the link in the show notes, I'll have a link to those prayers as well. And you should take them and bring them to your priest. Ask if he could have a special blessing no, December 12th after the daily mass that day. Uh, so that way you can have the special roses blessed for the Feast of Our Lady Guadalupe. December 13th is the Feast of St. Lucy. St. Lucy is one of those saints that I often see honored actually by Lutherans as well. So it's it's actually somewhat interesting that uh, Catholics are not the only ones to honor St. Lucy. Uh, and St. Lucy's been, you know, very commonly invoked for a long time as uh, the patroness of those suffering from ailments of the eyes, as well as those of Swedish and Italian descent who often celebrate her feast day. Uh, her name Lucia means light, and light plays a role in the customs for her feast day. In Italy, torch-lit processions and bonfires mark her day, and bowls of cooked wheat porridge are also eaten because during a famine, the people of Syracuse invoke St. Lucy who interceded by sending a ship laden with grain, much as St. Joseph also did for the people of Sicily. Now, but some of the loveliest St. Lucy's Day customs are Swedish. In Sweden, the oldest daughter of a family will wake up before dawn on St. Lucy's Day and dress in a white gown for purity, often with a red sash as a sign of martyrdom. On her head, she will wear a wreath of greenery and lit candles, and she's often accompanied by star boys, her small brothers, 
who are dressed in white gowns and cone-shaped hats that are decorated with gold stars and carrying tip-shaped wands. St. Lucy, it is said, will go around her house and wake up her family to serve them special St. Lucy Day foods, such as saffron buns. Um, And that custom is still celebrated to this day in some places, even though, unfortunately, Sweden has really lost the faith as it was taken over by Protestantism. Now, these connections, though, to the liturgical life help families live out the faith and teach the importance of imitating the virtues of the saints, like the purity of St. Lucy, which is surely very much needed in our modern world today. And going forward, December 15th, I'd like to make specific mention that that day is the traditional octave day of the Immaculate Conception. So throughout this whole week, we really should be calling to mind Our Lady, truly immaculately conceived in the womb of her mother and the powerful role she has with us with her son in heaven. Whether we're celebrating Our Lady of Guadalupe, commemorating the translation of the Holy House of Loretto, we're doing all of this under the protection of the patroness of the United States, that is Our Lady under her title as the Immaculate Conception. Now, the last topic I'd like to address for this episode is the question, was the Blessed Virgin Mary an unwed mother? And the answer is no. The Blessed Virgin Mary was espoused to St. Joseph when she conceived our Lord by the power of the Holy Ghost. And per Jewish law, the espousal right was when marriage was contracted. Thus, the Blessed Virgin Mary was married to St. Joseph and not an unwed mother by the Jewish laws of the time. Now, this is something that a priest local in my area stated in a sermon, and I think it's worth repeating. Quote, Of all the weddings to contemplate, that of Mary and Joseph is the most special and rich in meaning. The espousals of Joseph and Mary have been celebrated as a feast day at various times throughout the history of the church. Pious tradition holds that Joseph was about 33 or 36 years old when he took Mary as his wife. In those times, Jewish marriage was conducted in two stages. First, the consent of the couple was obtained, a marriage contract was signed, and the wedding ring was given to the bride. After this step, the couple continued to live apart so they could adequately prepare for their married life together. This period of preparation could last up to a year, but was usually about three months. At the end of the time of preparation, the husband would formally process to the bride's home, and then the couple would formally process back to the groom's house, where a great celebration would take place. The important point to remember is that in ancient Jewish practice, at the first betrothal, the couple is more than just engaged. They are validly married, yet their marriage is unconsummated. Thus, by God's providential arrangement, the Son of God became incarnate in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary when Joseph and Mary were fully married. Therefore, Jesus is a legitimate member of the Holy Family and the House of David, even though he was conceived before Joseph and Mary had come together, as stated in Matthew 1.18. Especially as we draw closer to the birth of our Lord, I think it's important for us to remember that the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph uh, were a family. We should contemplate the Holy Family. We should understand the struggles they went through in finding housing and, and the poverty in which our Lord was born. There's so many virtues to meditate upon. But one thing we should not do is say the Blessed Virgin Mary was an unwed mother. She was not. She was truly and really married to St. Joseph. That's all the time we have in today's episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. I hope and pray that all of you are continuing to prepare for Christmas, specifically by observing St. Martin's Lent, that is fasting at least Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, as well as absence, of course, in those days, as a minimum. You can do more Tuesdays, 
Thursdays and, and Saturdays are also great days to fast and abstain. And if you'd like to go a step farther, you can also add Sundays as a days of abstinence, but not a fasting. All of this to be said as a reminder that Advent is a penitential time. It is a time for preparation. We should be doing greater works of charity. We should be doing more donations. We should be helping out our fellow man, especially those in need. There's much that we can do, and let us make sure we're continuing to do these acts of charity so that way we can better prepare to receive our Lord, not just in Christmas and not just at the end of our lives uh, when we will receive judgment, but each and every time we encounter him in his grace and the sacraments and the life of prayer and the suffering he sends us. These other comings of Christ are what we remember in the Advent season. So let us truly have souls worthy to receive him at all times. May God grant you a most blessed week. Ad maiorum. Dei Gloriam. Quid olis peccata mori?